Chronic Illness Therapist podcast. This is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. Welcome, Jennifer. Jennifer Sutton is a North Carolina native who grew up in a small community of Pittsburgh. She's been a part of the chronic pain community for well over a decade and has firsthand experience with the physical and emotional struggles that come with pain. She found her passion for working with people who suffer from chronic pain and illness when she discovered how isolating pain can be and the lack of resources available for those who struggle. Jennifer is a licensed clinical mental health counselor associate in the state of North Carolina, as well as a national certified counselor. Jennifer opened Chronic Hope Counseling in 2019 in hopes to create a safe space focused solely on helping the chronic pain and illness community learn to live beyond their pain. Realizing that she wanted to do more, she found her nonprofit, Chronic Hope Cares, in 2021 to provide support, advocacy, connection, and resources for all the chronic pain and illness community. Jennifer, could you tell us a little bit about this nonprofit and what do you guys do over there? Yeah, so the nonprofit is very new, as you said. Um, It took a very, very long time to Mm -hmm. actually create it during COVID times, but we do a lot of different things. Um, one of the main things we do is what I call the advocacy program. And a lot of people upon hearing that think that we go out and advocate, but it's actually something very different. We teach people within the chronic pain community how to advocate for themselves. So um, I, through being a counselor, would hear horror stories of especially during COVID, people having to go to the hospital alone and being pretty much abused in the hospital setting and being taken advantage of in the way that they were forced to take medications or were talked into surgeries they didn't need because they didn't know how to stand up for themselves or didn't know how to communicate. Like, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to do this. And that really, really stuck with me. And I knew just being a chronic pain patient, how hard that is. I mean, in our community, doctors are huge, almost godlike beings, and it's very hard to stand up in a situation like that. We partner people with chronic pain with volunteer advocates that we train very well. Um, A lot of our advocates right now are actually interns that are working in chronic hope counseling. And we teach them how to advocate. We teach them how to communicate. We teach them how to goal set for their doctor's appointments. We teach them how to communicate with their doctors and pretty much how to effectively be a chronic pain patient. And a lot of people think like, that's kind of silly. Like, why do you need to learn to be a chronic pain patient? But it really is a big learning curve. You have to learn so many new things and we kind of swoop in and teach that in a really caring and often structured way. We have a lot of worksheets. We work one-on-one and we really try to 
make people understand that their health is in their hands and that can be a really powerful thing. So that's a big thing we do. And we do a lot of little things as well. We have like a pen pal program where we partner up just two people with chronic pain that can email or do old school letters. And we just try to make the chronic pain world a little smaller. Mm, And a little safer, it sounds like. Yeah, that really is the goal because it's terrifying. I remember going from being healthy. Um, I was a competitive tennis player for most of my youth and I was very healthy. And I remember becoming chronically ill. And for more than one reason, it's terrifying. And making that adjustment alone, a lot of times when doctors don't understand what's going on, is very overwhelming. And we're there to be that support. Yeah. Can you give an example of maybe what some of your um, interns teach as far as advocacy? What are some concrete things that maybe you've seen to be the most helpful or just give people a little bit of spark? Yeah. So um, I did mention goal setting. Um, I really enjoy teaching just people in the chronic pain community okay, you're going to this doctor's appointment and we have a really good goal setting worksheet. And what do you want to get out of this appointment? What is going to make you feel like this appointment was a success? And how are you going to make sure you get that? And it can be as simple as I want to go into my general practitioner and I really want a gastroenterologist referral. Okay, well, how do you go and communicate that? And, you know, some people like to go in and explain their symptoms, their GI symptoms, and other people like to go in and be like, I want a gastroenterologist Mm. referral. And neither of those are wrong. And we role play a lot of that, you know, pretend I'm the doctor, what would you say, you know, get comfortable. Um, Some of that is, you know, this medication isn't working. A lot of people have a really hard time communicating to doctors that this medication isn't working. How do I tell a doctor that who has given me five different medications before? Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine the fear in all of goal setting, why goal setting tends to be so hard for people with chronic pain is because there's so much failure that comes along with, with trying to accomplish some of these things. So it sounds like you go into that and you're like, so what do you do with that when someone's like, I've already asked my doctor for five different medications. What, what's next for them? Yeah, um, that's really up to them. You know, it really is and very individualistic. You know, what do they want to do? Um, we're not really big into telling them what's next. You know, we're big into what do you think is next and how can we help you get there? And um a lot of people don't realize that they don't have to stick with that doctor if that doctor makes them feel uncomfortable. I remember my mom telling me once that she was she was at an appointment with like a gynecologist or something, and the doctor was making her feel really uncomfortable. And she had this moment where she realized, like, I don't have to stay here and do this exam with this doctor. I can leave. And she got up and she left. Yeah. And people don't realize they can do that. Mid-exam, if you feel uncomfortable, you can be like, I don't want to be here. I I want to leave. I don't want to finish this. And just having that power of like, okay, they may be an expert in whatever specialty they're an expert in, but you're an expert in you. And there's a lot of power in that. 
and helping them realize that they have power in whatever they're struggling with as well. They're not just there along for the ride. They're, they have a lot of say as well and helping them find that voice. Yeah, I think it's a good point that a lot of people don't realize or the fear is just so big inside of them that mm-hmm. even though they might be sitting there thinking like, I really don't want to be here, there's just too much blocking them to kind of get up and leave. But having someone who honestly gives you that permission, not mm-hmm. that we, any of us need permission, but um, some of us, yeah, until we see it or hear it from someone else, it's just, it doesn't even register that that's something that we can do. Absolutely. And it's not that we they need permission, but they need to realize that they have that permission. Right. Because I have done procedures and medications that I knew were wrong for me, but I knew that I needed to take this medication to get to the next step, even though I knew it was wrong for me. And looking back, I should have handled that differently. And I always say, I like to learn from other people's mistakes. I don't like to learn from mine. Um, I'd much rather learn from someone else's. So I think if we can get, you know, a big community of people together who have learned, you know, just what it is to be chronically ill and have seen these mistakes for themselves, then the new people coming up don't have to relearn them. We've already done that for them. And that can be huge. Can you give an example of maybe what um, it feels like or how you know when something's not working for you? Yeah, that it can be very, very different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for me, I've been dealing with a lot of hormonal things. Um, I had surgery on my uterus in this past year. And Recently, I had a doctor that told me my only choice was to switch up my type of birth control. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I'm like, this is stupid. I've done this before. I have changed my birth control and every time I get sicker. And I knew it was going to be wrong to do, but I was told by like two different doctors that it was my only choice. And I knew in my mind that wasn't true. I knew there were other choices, but I do like to try to trust the doctors that I see. And so even with all my experience and all of my logic, I still decided to go along with that. And it did make things worse. You know, I'm still struggling in a completely different way and my symptoms are worse. So a lot of times it can be worsening of symptoms. Mm -hmm. It can be new symptoms that are completely out of left field. You've never seen them before. And you're like, what is this? Like I've came in to try to fix one thing and all of a sudden there's something completely different. Um, It can be like you have a diagnosis and there's something like a procedure that's actually known to be bad to go along with that diagnosis. And they recommend that. And you have to kind of be, be like, hey, I know my diagnosis is rare, but this is known to not be good with this diagnosis. Yeah, I've done those as well. (laughs) I've been talked into those procedures as well. And, you know, it can come in a whole different, you know, box of flavors, but it all comes down to just not being good for your body in one way or another. So it sounds like there is a little bit of experience that's needed like some some trial and error of on your own before you kind of get to a point of like 
this is how I this is how I can be proactive now and say I know this doesn't work for me sounds like you kind of have to have some of those negative experiences before you get to a place like that yeah you there's definitely that's one way to do it and I think another way is having that community like if I would have had a better community around my diagnosis which I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and if I would have been more in that community I would have known more that what procedures work and what don't so I could have learned from other people's mistakes yeah yeah that's a hard one too with EDS because it's there's so many different types and so it does show up differently in so many different people so I would imagine you would need a pretty like good large community and then to know yourself too because if somebody's saying you know this didn't work for me but but why like can you explain why so that you know if it relates to you or not because it might not but it also might. And so, um, yeah, I just think that's a hard one because, um, there could be a lot of fear and I know I've had some experiences where there's fear of trying a certain thing. And then I, I finally gave in and it was the right choice for me. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's a balance. I think that oh, experience, sure. that community, um, it all goes hand in hand. Yeah, it definitely does. And you know, sometimes that fear is valid and sometimes it's just a, a fear that's that's simply a fear and we do have to get out of our comfort zone to find what's right for us as well and so there's definitely no one size fits all for anything yeah yeah it's that's what makes chronic illness so hard is that there is no even with the same diagnosis it can show up differently in so many different people um and I think it's also really hard to to know that you know what you said was true you know there are certain treatments where I know that that is actually with this diagnosis, that is not a beneficial treatment, but you would think, you know, why are doctors doing this? And I can't speak to that. I can't speak to why they might choose a certain treatment. I don't know if it's not enough information. They can't be expected to know everything. Um, but what's hard, I think is when you have someone who's like, nope, this is the only option versus a doctor who's maybe more like, let me look into that a little bit more or let's work through this together. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're feeling resistant to a certain type of treatment, even if it is something that maybe would be beneficial for you, I think your body sets, sets, it turns on the fire alarms. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I love the doctors that say, I don't know, but let's find (laughs) out. Yeah. I love those are the ones that just seem excited or intrigued to kind of go on the journey with you or, you know, seem excited in some sort of way. Those are the ones I always tend to stick with instead of the ones that just think they know everything and they give you one option. That that's always kind of something that sticks out to me in a negative way. Yeah. Are the ones with the signs on their walls now that say, don't confuse your, your experience with my degree or don't ask Dr. Google. Yeah. Oh my God. Where would I be without Googling? Like I diagnosed myself and then it took me years to get a doctor to get into the right doctor, you know, to get into a geneticist to confirm that. And I would have never gotten there without, you know, some of my own research. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to your research process um, or even, you know, what it looks like for people that you see? Cause I think that's important for people to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So I, in retrospect, I didn't realize this until very recently, but I have been chronically ill my whole life. Um, EDS is genetic. So 
my mom and my sister has it. So when I would tell my mom when I was little, my leg would hurt. She's like, oh, when I was little and my leg would hurt, I would just wrap it with a pillowcase this way. See, it's normal. It's oh. so like, it's so, uh, I was like, oh, everybody's leg hurts and they just wrap it in pillowcases. And so like, I didn't realize oh. that I was dealing with something that wasn't normal until well into my teens, even though my sister and I both had jaw dislocations and jaw surgery in wow. our teens. I thought it was normal. My older sister did it. It's just something people do, you know? So yeah, um, makes sense very, that you very, thought that. Yeah, so very long time I was dealing with chronic illness without knowing it, but by the time it got debilitating, it was over a decade before I got someone to put a name to what was going on, and it's exhausting. Um, I was in my late teens, early 20s, searching for an answer for something that was progressing. I had a lot of doctors tell me I was young and to shake it off, it would be fine to start powerlifting and running and walk it off. And that messes with your head in so many different ways. Cause you're like, oh, if I just do this, it will go away. Yep. And that damages you mentally and physically because I kept playing tennis and I kept exercising not listening to my body. I really tuned my body out and it took me a very long time to tune back into that and start listening to it. But I you know, continuously went to doctors for about a decade. And if I hadn't been persistent and if I hadn't done research on my own, I never would have gotten a diagnosis. And I went into a migraine specialist. I had been having migraines, still have this problem, but I've been having migraines pretty much daily for quite a while. And I walked in and I sat down and this doctor looks at me and he goes, do you have EDS? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know what that is. And um, in retrospect, when I hurt, I tend to fold my hands and walk in a certain way that I'm very protective of my joints. And he's like, you know, he did a few things with my joints and he's like, girl, you're hypermobile. And I had been going to physical therapy for about six, seven years at that point, And nobody had told me I was hypermobile. And he's like, you need to fight for an EDS diagnosis. It's like, do some research, get on every geneticist waiting list you can and fight for an EDS diagnosis and that's what I did and um, I was finally diagnosed officially the summer of 2020 so it was not that long ago I knew I had it for a few years before then but if it's not in the records it's not real <laughs> right so it took a long time and if you don't have the time if you don't have the insurance, if you don't have the money, if you don't have the wonderful husband to drive you around, if you don't have all of these resources, you'll fall in the, through the cracks. And that's heartbreaking. It shouldn't, it shouldn't happen. And I see it all the time. Yeah. It shouldn't be that way. No. Is there anything, is this where some of your 
advocates come in. Do your advocates ever go to doctor's appointments with patients, with clients, or is that more so just they're teaching them their own self-advocacy? We haven't because of COVID. Mm. Um, it is in the like description on the website that we hope to do that soon, especially with ER visits and especially during surgeries. Yeah. Because I do know people that go to surgeries alone and get sent home alone and shouldn't happen. Yeah. And I think it does take some practice, you know, having someone to go with you to these doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. and that is something I want to do, but a lot of places still aren't letting someone come into appointments with that, with you, yeah. which I think they shouldn't be allowed to do. Yeah. I know I had surgery during COVID time. I had um, a, a full joint refiguration on my jaw and my husband had to drop me off at Duke and wave as I walked through the door and I had to do it alone and it was terrifying. It and he should have been able to stay. Other hospitals were letting people stay and we both had been COVID tested. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's hard right now. I think um, there's so many different, there's so many different policies and laws and um, even our health professionals in the country like saying different things and, um, mm. you know, things change over time and that's okay. But right now it feels like a free-for-all like everyone just do Mm -hmm. what you want and some people are kind of like adamantly sticking to their guns about things that maybe we now know aren't necessary and then we also people totally still laissez-faire as if COVID isn't real so it's it's we run the gamut in this country and it makes it so much harder for the people who need help and need services because there's already so much uncertainty in chronic illness and there's already so much fear and then mm-hmm. to add that level of, I don't know if I'm going to be able to even have support through this. Right. It really just adds a whole extra level. Yeah, it was, it was definitely scary because we had both been vaccinated at that point. We had both been COVID tested and um, I have bad reactions to anesthesia. So I come out fighting and I hallucinate. Mm. So I knew I had these complications and I didn't know who was going to be around me. And I had, I've known that like I had surgery when I was a teenager and I slapped a doctor coming out of anesthesia, not knowing. And the doctor had a bad reaction, like got upset and like left Mm. like mid surgery. And so I don't know what's going to happen. So I felt very unsafe, not having someone in the building to advocate for me. Yeah. With such an experience like that in the past, I can only imagine. And I'm like, that's how some people feel all the time. You know, I have people reach out to me all the time saying, I have to have surgery. Is there anyone who can drive me and stay there and drive me home? It sounds like your nonprofit's doing some good work around that as much as they can, but it's it's, uh, still just being held back a little. Yeah, it definitely is. And not a lot of people know about it yet. And we've been struggling to get the word out and you know we hope to get more people involved and it will become bigger sooner because we definitely I I love what it does and I'm really passionate about what it does so I want to be able to help as many people as we can with that and you know with counseling we're restricted to North Carolina but with the nonprofit we're not so we can work with anybody with that 
with the power of Zoom and you know, Zoom has really done some great things and telehealth has done some great things. So we really have access to help anybody. Yeah. Which is a great part of the nonprofit, which is part of why I opened it because I hated being so restricted to North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a newsletter that kind of keeps people updated on on what's going yeah. on there? Yeah, I do. So um we kind of combine the counseling center and chronic hope cares newsletter for now just because we don't have enough people signed up for the nonprofit one yeah but they can just send me an email I don't know if you'll have my email somewhere yeah I can I can definitely add your email in the show notes yeah but just send me an email and we'll add you to that list yeah Great. okay cool yeah I think it's um it's just so important people need advocacy work and I what I love the most was that you said you you role play with people because um it's one thing to just teach and then say okay like go out in the world and do it but you need that modeling you need that experience and that's where role play comes in really handy in situations like that and what's great is a lot of the volunteers we have now like I said they're interns at chronic hope counseling so they're going through master's program for counseling working as advocates so they're very knowledgeable with what they're doing yeah and they're very well trained and even the volunteers who aren't interns they I train them they have access to all the same um, worksheets and everything and they talk to me and just we never just train them and then send them out you know so well they'll always keep in touch with us yeah this is a lot of work. It's hard work. What keeps you going? Yeah. So, you know, I've talked a little bit about just my chronic illness and I struggle a lot with my health. Um, I struggle every day with my health. And I decided at some point that something good had to come out of my illness, out of my struggle. And this was it. (laughs) This is what came out of it. And it's all pure passion and passion and rage, which sounds so silly, but I, I feel the lack of resources and that makes me so angry. And I just want to create the resources that I wish I had when I was first diagnosed and every day after that. Yeah, it's, it doesn't sound silly at all. Anger is a really strong motivator. And yeah. a lot of us just suppress our anger, right? Because in this society, we're not supposed to share or, or express our anger, yeah. um, especially as women. Um, yeah. And so I think it's important that you mention that your anger, our anger can drive us and can it yeah. drive you to do good or can it drive you to maybe do not so good? So yeah, yeah thanks for saying that. Yeah, it was about a decade ago when I started getting pretty sick and I decided to try to look for a counselor and I was sent to an addictions counselor because they told me that was the closest thing they had to a chronic pain counselor. Mm -hmm. And I got so mad and I'm like, I'm not on any medication. I'm not addicted to anything. And that day I went home and started researching grad schools Mm -hmm. and I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like, there's no one I looked up, like, there is no one specializing in this. I'm like, there are some counselors out there that on, you know, 
counselors like to list like 15 specialties mm-hmm. and chronic pain will be in there somewhere but it's close to the bottom. It's something that maybe they've seen one or two people, but there was no body that was 100% focused on chronic pain. And that made no sense to me. So I went back to school and um, from the beginning, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And throughout my entire program, chronic pain counseling was never brought up except when I brought it up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that needs to change. So I go back to my grad school now and I do talks on chronic pain counseling and I take interns from my alma mater and I try to make sure that it's not left out of the curriculum anymore because it it shouldn't be. I love that you're doing that. Yeah, you're right. Chronic pain is just, all anyone ever knows about it is addiction. Yeah. which is a whole other topic mm-hmm. of why these people got addicted in the first place. Um, oh yeah. If you're, it goes hand in hand because of how overprescribed medications are and how right. nothing else is given to, I, when we start to get into the concept of mindfulness and, and things that you can do for your chronic pain, it can sound really invalidating. So I always want to make sure that I give mm-hmm. that caveat before I start talking about it, but there are things you can do to mitigate your pain so that it's not so heavy, so hard Mm -hmm. level 10 day after day after day. But if you take pain medication for a lengthy amount of time, your body just has no resources, no ability to handle it because everything's been covered up with that. And Mm -hmm. pain medication can be great short-term. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a crutch. It's not a, a bad thing. But when you're taking it for months and months on end and no one has told you any other way to handle Mm -hmm. that pain, it's hard. It's hard to bounce back from that. Absolutely can, but you're going to need a lot of support. And that's why I love your advocacy program because that support is hard to find. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and, you know, a lot of times things are prescribed without any sort of education. I know my mom had knee replacement surgery and she literally came home with a bottle of like 90 oxys. Mm. And she's like, should I take this? I'm like, you should call your doctor and talk to them about that mm. probably. Cause that's a lot. <laughs> I'm like, that's a lot. Yeah. So it's definitely something that's given without education. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's overprescribed in a lot of ways. And then now it feels like some providers won't give it at all. Yeah. So it's, once again, different policies, different things. Like yeah. everywhere you go, it goes back to that not knowing what to expect. And if yeah. you know how to advocate for yourself and, and just speak up for yourself, it reduces some of that fear of like asking questions. You don't know if your doctor is a type of doctor who's right. willing to hand them out like candy or if they're going to be right. like, no, you're in need and I'm still not going to give it to you. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Cause like full disclosure here, I use a pain patch that gives me really, really low dose pain meds consistently yeah. throughout the day. And I get joint dislocations pretty consistently. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't walking before they gave them to me and it got me back up and walking. And I think that there are places for some things. Yeah. 
And I just think that you have to learn to advocate and find what's right for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one tool in a whole toolbox. Yeah, this was after a very long time of trying everything. Mm-hmm. This was not a first, a first, you know, it's not the first thing I tried for sure. This was probably around the 50th, 60th thing I've tried. Yeah. And I think that's like that for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Do you find, I know I've found uh, within my work with chronic pain that most mm-hmm. of my clients don't, they don't take medication. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the narrative is still so much around chronic pain and addiction. Yeah. But the clients, maybe it's just Mm-mm. the clients who find me, but you know, cause I don't advertise that I, I don't work with addiction. Um, and so yeah. maybe that's why I don't get any, but yeah. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. I find, I find the same thing. I find if anything, my clients are pretty under medicated, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, I find that very, 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 very few of mine. I've ever been concerned about the amount of medication they take. Very few of them. Have I ever seen any sort of addiction qualities? I mean, I would say 96 to 97% of my clients I have never been concerned with any sort of addictive behaviors. And I think it is because, you know, we're aware of that. We are aware of that as someone with chronic pain, we're very vigilant with how the world sees that. And there is more education with chronic pain now. You know, there are plenty of doctors that I've been to that say right off the bat, you know, we're not a clinic that prescribes anything, which in certain circumstances can be very beneficial to be in those kind of clinics. And I do know with, you know, the medication I am prescribed, I have to go to them every four weeks. I can't get prescribed any sort of medication unless I'm in their office. I don't get any refills. Mm. And I think it's monitored a little bit more. And I think there are more resources and there are more it's not the first thing, you know, I did nerve ablations. I did everything. I mean, (laughs) I did everything. And I think most people have done everything. And then there's the um, emotional and mental health side of things to help um, deal with your chronic pain. Can you talk a little bit about your experience or what you work on with clients? Yeah. So I think One thing that people don't realize is that physical pain and suffering are two very different things. I think that you can be in a lot of physical pain and not necessarily have a high level of suffering. And on the other end, you can have a lot of suffering and not have a high level of physical pain. And I think that can change day to day. Is I know there are some days where I have my worst pain, but I'm actually in an okay mood. (laughs) You know, they don't always correlate 100%. And that's really, really important to educate clients on and let them know that even though I can't fix your pain, I'm not a doctor, you know, that's not something I have control of. We can fix the suffering. And a lot of times they're very intertwined. You know, they're like a ball of yarn that you find in a basement. And you're like, crap, there's no way I'm getting that undone. But we can, little by little, we can start separating this out. 
And it has to do with the way we think about and the way we process the pain that we're in is going to decide the suffering that we feel. And that's where the coping, the meditation, the mindfulness, the mental health side comes into pain. It's let's minimize your suffering. I love the way you put that and the way that you delineate suffering and pain. I think that a lot of us, you know, at one point or another feel like if I'm not suffering, then people won't know my pain is real. And so Mm -hmm. I have to prove it even more Mm -hmm. so that other, because inherently it improves our pain to be seen by other people. And so if people aren't seeing us, it's it's kind of this vicious cycle, but I'm going to go into suffering mode so that you will see me, which will make my pain worse. And then you'll, you seeing me might make my pain a little better. And again, just goes back and forth. Absolutely. And I think that goes a lot into invalidation that we feel whether, you know, by family, by just people around us, by doctors, you know, I've had my mom or people around me say like, okay, we're going to this doctor. You need, you need to show them that you're sick, like act sick today, you know, and I get that, you know, because if you go in smiling and chirpy, you're not going to necessarily get what you need because people do have stereotypes in their head of what someone chronically ill looks like and those stereotypes suck Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think breaking those and changing those is a whole different story but it is a suffering person is what that stereotype is it's someone crippling over in pain it's someone in a bad mood it's someone that's just so overwhelmed by their pain that they can't talk or function but you know what you don't know is like I'm in quite a bit of pain today you know I'm struggling I had physical therapy yesterday and that always triggers things I had a migraine last night that's not good but I'm in an okay mood today I don't you know if someone was to walk in they probably wouldn't know that right and that's because we do find ways to separate those out You don't have to suffer to be in pain, right? And I like to tell this this story um, that we have these two different scenarios, right? I always give this when I'm giving a talk or something. And I'd like the audience to decide kind of scenario A or scenario B, which person do you think is in most pain, right? Scenario A, you're having like, the best day ever. It's sunny out. You got a promotion at work. It's Friday. It's date night. And you're so excited to go out and you're running around, you're getting ready and you found the perfect outfit and your date rings the doorbell and you're running to the door and you stub your toe. That's scenario A. Scenario B, it is raining. You got looked over for a promotion. You get home and realize you have no food. So you throw a frozen pizza in the oven, you forget to put on a timer, and you realize you forget to put on a timer when your smoke alarm goes off. You're running to get the pizza, and you stub your toe while running to get the pizza. Which toe toe do you think hurts the most? I would imagine it's the one who's been suffering all day. With The one that's been suffering. Yeah. Right. And it's because, you know, you hurt your toe the same, but your mood was so bad when you did that, that that's going to be more frustrating. 
scenario A, you probably moved on. It was like, ow, that hurt, whatever. But you kept running to the door and you continued with your day. Right. Yeah. You're looking forward to the date. You're, yeah. you've had a good day. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, um, there's, I forget the name of it, but there's a stress model um, that has a really thorough explanation of how when your cup, you can kind of imagine a cup and if it's filled to the brim and mm -hmm. something happens, now it's spilling over and filled exactly. to the brim might look like I've been in pain all day already. Right. I had a bad day at work. I didn't get enough sleep last night. I didn't eat enough today. All of those things right. start to make this cup heavier and heavier and then stubbing your toe. It literally is like the last straw. Right. Screw it. I don't even want to go on this date anymore because this right. is the worst day ever. Right. But if, yeah, if your cup is pretty, you know, you ate enough that day, you slept enough, you had, right. you know, a really good day, then you can handle that stress a little bit better. And right. I just, again, always want to reiterate this isn't about choice and this isn't about mindset. Yeah. It's literally like, okay, so if you did have a really shit day and now you stub your toe mm -hmm. and you don't want to go on the date anymore, this is a whole other topic about values and kind of mm -hmm. what you want to do next. Like, I still think you can, you can figure out a way to go if it's that, if it's important to you, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be important to you. Right. You can also cancel. You can Absolutely. also say, this is not working tonight. And I just need what Absolutely. I need is rest. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, listening to your body and respecting both your minds and your, your physical body, what they're saying and, you know, being mindful of just where you are both mentally and physically and giving both of them their time of day. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, is there maybe one thing you can kind of um, give here at the end to people listening that might just kind of either provide some hope or maybe is something that you hope people take away from what you've said so far today? Yeah. Um, I think that pain is not a finite state. You know, pain is very fluid. And I think we imagine it as a very rigid thing that we feel at a very high state 100% of the time but it's very fluid and we can take advantage of that and we can learn techniques and we can really, you know, feel power in that to learn to separate that pain from the suffering and learn to take the good days with the bad and learn to live beyond your pain. Cause you are so much more than just pain or an illness. There's a person under there too. And sometimes we forget that. I love that pain is fluid. It just reminds you to go. It goes back to what we were just talking about. You don't have to stay in the pain to yeah. prove anything. It, it yeah. does go in and out and up and down. And that doesn't make it any more or less, more or less real. Yeah. Um, when you're feeling better. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. If you learned something new today, try writing it down in your phone notes or your journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better understand the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.